Hello and welcome to a special edition of Modern Day Philosophers. Today I have the great pleasure of interviewing a man who is a writer, an entrepreneur, and soon to be a podcaster, the great Art Bell, the author of the new book, Constant Comedy. How are you, Art? I'm good, Danny. How are you? I'm doing well, considering, you know, that uh, it's early 2021 when we're doing this and I live in Los Angeles where the news is all pretty bleak. I think I'm doing okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The news is pretty bleak. Period. Yeah. But uh, we uh, we soldier on. Yeah. Well, what else are you gonna do? Right. I started looking around and noticing so many people are just getting depressed, and I figured I have a choice, and I may as well just stay optimistic and positive because I don't want to go back down that road. I've been depressed and feel like I covered that for my life already. Yeah. No, I I, I read you. You don't want to do that more than once. Right. <laughs> I took it to the extreme. I took it all the way to the, right to the edge of the cliff. And then I figured, okay, well, that's about as much depression as I need. And I'm... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm glad you're out of it. Yeah. So your book is fantastic, and it's really interesting. You're one of the founders of Comedy Central. Uh, you don't need me to tell you that, but I'm telling that to the audience. <laughs> <laughs> what if you go, I am? Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, news to me. No, no, I, uh, you're absolutely right. Is that what you wanted me to say? No, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm setting it up for the listeners. But, um, man, I wish somebody would tell me that. That would be pretty good news. And I have a lot of uh, points I want to make from the book, but one thing that I thought was really interesting, and it's just a good jumping-in point, I think, is that you had this original idea to take clips from old movies from old comedy movies, uh, as a way to launch this. And it was, you were right on the brink of it, and then the plug got pulled, and uh, you suspect, you say in the book, that it was Woody Allen. I, I wonder if I can prompt <laughs> you to go into that story a little bit. Well, that is the story. Um, we, the, the, the way I proposed to start this channel was to use clips. And you say old movie clips. They weren't old movie clips, though some were. But, you know, just movie clips. Mm -hmm. From the, you know the last fifty years, wherever they wherever they were, uh, and we did get permission from all the guilds to do just that because they were anxious uh, and excited to have us promote movies that otherwise wouldn't be promoted because they had video cassettes out of all the movies. You may remember the old blockbuster days, mm -hmm. or not, but sure, you know you I could do. rent you could rent movies at blockbuster. So they thought, great, this will be promotion for the movies. Uh, so we went about our, putting all these clips together. And then at the last minute, the Directors Guild, when I say the last minute, a few weeks before we launched, mm -hmm. uh, called and said we had a board meeting and they changed their minds. The board says you can't do it. So we had – imagine my disappointment, <laughs> to put it mildly. Yeah, I mean uh, more than disappointment. I was, I was faced with launching yeah. with no programming. Mm -hmm. the, the story was – and again, I, I think I also say this in the book, I hope I did, that it was unverified, but it was rumored that it was Woody Allen who was on the board who said, no, I don't want them to do that. Well, he's certainly not the easiest going guy, so it could be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but at that time, you know, the Woodman was a hero, you know, to me. I, right. I'd read his stuff. I'd seen every one of his movies. He was at the peak of his uh, movie career, and it was just, it was like getting smacked and then smacked again, you know? Right. Well, there's a great segue to where I wanted to go with this next, which is to backtrack. Obviously, you have to have loved comedy to go down this road. And one of the, the, the subtitle, or uh, I, I suppose is what you'd call of the, of the book, 
is um is pretty funny to that point it said uh how you um you lost your sense of humor right right the whole the whole title just to start with uh, the beginning is constant comedy how i started comedy central and lost my sense of humor right so you let's talk about how you got the sense of humor in the first place when <laughs> did you when did you fall in love with comedy in the first place and at what point did you decide yeah this is where i want to go with my life uh when i was a kid uh, it was not unusual for us to be laughing in the house. My bro- I had two brothers. They were pretty funny. My father was pretty funny. There was a lot of laughter. And then where, where did you on grow top up? of that, a um, place called Lakewood, New Jersey, mm-hmm. on the Jersey Shore, near Asbury Park. Uh, it's near- a very religious Jewish neighborhood. Are you a Hasidic Jew? No, I am not. <laughs> um, and, and I will say this. When we grew up, that was not not the uh not the situation there mm-hmm. so it has really kind of changed in the last 30 years but um as, it was such a sort of um average american town in those days it was really a good place to grow up you know near the shore we went to the beach every day bruce springsteen country mm-hmm. which uh sure was uh its own benefit because you got to hear the boss before he was the boss i guess he was just like kind of the sub boss at those days but we saw him at the stone pony all the time. Anyway, getting back to your question. Yeah. So, yeah, so it was pretty fun. You know, we laughed a lot in our house. And um, every Sunday night was the Ed Sullivan show. And my brothers and I would pour over the TV guide and see who was going to be on Ed Sullivan because we had our favorite comedians. Mm-hmm. And who I really? must have been, you who know, some of your favorites? seven, eight. Alan King was a personal favorite. Mm-hmm. I mean, when Alan King was on, that was a big day. And I don't know, you know, listen, he was, he was terrific. Um, you know what's interesting about Alan King is that he didn't really transfer over to my generation. I can't think of one comedian that I came up with that ever even talks about Alan King. I met him once. I was a member of the Friars Club, and I didn't even the the significance was lost on me. I didn't know any of his stuff. I didn't, uh, you know, I just knew he was a famous comedian. So maybe, <laughs> maybe kind you of. You know what? It's interesting. Yeah. Um, comedians sometimes lose their fastball and. When you talk about intergenerationally, uh-huh. there was a there was kind of a shift in the way stand up comedy was going on, uh, and he was kind of you know sort of in definitely in the old school, even though you know he was around when Lenny Bruce started, mm-hmm. obviously in the late fifties. But you know, Alan King was you know take my wife please. I mean that wasn't his joke, but that was his that was mm-hmm. his milieu. You know, telling right. jokes about his wife, about his family, about, you know, all of that in a, in a very sort of ethnic way, you know, he was Jewish and he, he told it, uh, he, he worked the Borscht belt and that's what was going on. It's, it's, uh, you're right. That stuff doesn't translate to your generation. Um, but interestingly, and I don't know how you feel about this as Good. long as we're talking about it. I always think on. that, <laughs> you know, one of the things I, I liked, when I started to get into comedy was learning about the old comedy. You know, one of the shows I produced when I was at comedy channel and, uh, I worked with Robert Klein on it. Actually, he was, the he was a narrator was yeah. a show about the, um, the silent comedians, Keaton and, and, uh, and Chaplin and, and Fatty Arbuckle and those guys. And, you know, I was in the booth watching some of the stuff for the first time. Honestly, I didn't write it, but I did produce it. And, and Robert Klein and I would watch it and marvel at how brilliantly funny these guys were. Now, it's not the kind of funny you can show your kids, 
I don't know because about that. Because they'll just kind of say, oh, yeah, okay, really? it's in black and white. That's a, that's but it two is, strikes it right there. it holds up. It's so funny. It's so slapstick. The other day, I was just watching some Buster Keaton because, you know, I think it's fascinating. He did almost all his, old, his own stunts. And there's oh, compilations man, yeah. of his stunts that you can watch on YouTube, and they're just fantastic. I mean, yeah. His stunts, his, his slapstick stunts were the greatest. And interestingly, Buster Keaton doing his own stunts, he got hurt a lot. And when he was a kid, when he was five years old, he was in an act with his parents. And during the act, they would literally pick him up and throw him into the audience, <laughs> expecting the audience to catch him. And that's, that's how he got his stunt start. But my favorite story about Keaton is he went to the doctor once because he had a headache or something. And he took some x-rays and the doctor came back and said, when did you break your neck? And Keaton said, I, I don't know if, when I broke my neck. And it turns out, I don't know if you remember this. He was standing, there was one movie where he was standing under a water tower mm. at a train station and the water tower opened up and dumped like 14 tons of water on him wow. while he was standing there. And it was a gag and he broke his neck and he didn't even notice it. He just kept on going. Talk about trooper. huh? Wow. Wow. Yeah. I guess. Anyway. We, yeah. We so really my point, yeah. The point I was making <laughs> though was, you know, the comedy of today, you know, and you know what the great standups are these days, um, that, that all owes so much to the the comedy f over the last hundred years. I mean, it's just that's where that's where it started. And I think one of the things I I, <clears throat> I liked about Comedy Channel and Comedy Central and wanted to have be a part of it was sort of the celebration of the old comedy mm -hmm. and of the older comedians and to bring some of that to a younger generation. Not all, you know. I mean, you can't. You're right. It's not all brilliantly funny, but Certainly, some of it was very funny, and, and they should know, people should know the roots. Lenny Bruce, for example. I mean, do kids today know Lenny Bruce? I don't know. People when know about Lenny school, Bruce, but they don't really know his stuff or anything. I was in He's, high school in the 70s, remember, and I was reading about Lenny figure. Bruce, who was yeah. a, a comic in the 60s, early 60s. Um, and he was a transformational comic, as mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, I mean, he was getting up there and talking about his depression and his his drug addiction and his horrifying life and he was getting arrested on stage every every time he did his act yeah uh for for language and and just the his his subject matter so that that was the transformation i think that was a, a large part of the transformation into a more personal kind of uh comedy so um, but you know getting back to ed sullivan yeah when i saw some of these guys i saw richard Pryor for the first time on ed sullivan uh when he made his first appearance and he was a young kid and he did a bit about getting beat up on the playground. Mm -hmm. Now, <laughs> I think that resonated with every kid across America <laughs> yeah. who was watching. And it was brilliantly funny. And it was also about, you know, it, it had aspects of race. And I thought, man, this guy is really, really good. And he's talking about something that a lot of people don't talk about. So that was, that was pretty transformational, too, on the Ed Sullivan show. Uh, so yeah, so that's that's where that's that's where I got, so you got a hooked lot watching, of my watching original comedy education. Old timers on Ed Sullivan. Then fast forward, you wind up working in television and ultimately at HBO. Um, let's talk about how you got into TV in the first place. Yeah, you know, originally I came out of college with an economics degree and got a job as an economist in Washington D.C. working for a consulting firm. What was the hope economic... there? You wanted to break into 
<laughs> what politics or how'd that happen yeah. no no i i just fell in love with economics when i was in, in uh, college and i became uh, an economist and i did a lot of comedy i know you were in second city i think did you do second City? i did I'm yeah remembering yeah. yeah so you know i i loved sketch comedy i was doing some sketch comedy in in college not much stand-up but i also performed in plays i loved that stuff um, and I had friends who actually said at the end of our, our college career, we're going to L.A., we're going to be writers, and uh, why don't you come along? And I said, no, thanks. I got this job as an, econo- an economist. Mm-hmm. So I did that for a few years. Didn't even think about television, um, even though I loved it. But at the end of the three years, I thought, man, I, I, I don't think I can do this for my whole life. So I went was back it, to was school, which is kind of like or... changing the channel. Sorry? You say you couldn't do it for your whole life. Were you bored there or... What was it? What was going no, on for you? I, you? People always ask me, say, oh, man, you were an economist. That must have been horrible because you didn't really want to do that. Let me tell you, I got to work with really smart people, and we were working on really, really crazy, hairy problems, and it was fascinating stuff. And I got to do things when I was 24, 25 years old that, you know, <laughs> kind of I, sh- I shouldn't have been doing. I was too young to be doing you know, an involved in that kind of stuff. Like what? Well, we were writing regulations for the Environmental Protection Agency. We were building models for the Department of Energy to talk to to figure out what you know prices would uh, of of energy would be. We were, and and then a big project of mine was we we did uh we built basically did the economics and engineering work for the first gasohol plant in the United States. And I did all the economic and financial analysis. And I didn't know anything about finance. I was an economist. Mm-hmm. And I had to read a finance book like as I was going into the project to figure out what to do. So, you know, these were things where I was dealing with very high level people and working on interesting things. No, right. boredom was not the problem. So yeah, I it just sounds like you were really the channel. on the up and I just, up. I just said, yeah. okay, I've done this. You know, this is cool. Okay. But I don't want to go back to school, become a PhD economist and continue to do this. So I'm going to go back to business school. That was my plan. Mm -hmm. And as I said, that's like changing the channel for me. Like, okay, throw everything out, start all over again. And, uh, when I got to, when I got to business school, there was a, I I asked immediately where the guys like me, you know, the people who are interested in the entertainment industry Mm -hmm. and there weren't many, but they did put on a show every year called the Wharton Follies. And that's where I was directed. And I ended up being in the show. It was a satirical musical review. Mm-hmm. And then the second year, I wrote the show. Uh, and I remembered how much I loved comedy. I was writing comedy. And that came out pretty well. And then I thought, yeah, okay, time to go into television. That's what I thought. I wanted a job in television. So where'd you apply? So that's what I did. When I got out of school, uh, all my friends went to Wall Street or investment banks or consulting firms. And I held out for a job at CBS. So interesting. It seems to me, and it might just be indicative of the times that you grew up in, but it seems that uh, you you went through life with this idea that whatever door, you know, I'll just, I don't feel like the doors are all open like that anymore. And I could be wrong, but I, I, I hear stories from people of your generation and it really sounds like there was this ambition in the air and there was this excitement and opportunity was abundant in my Misreading it, were you particularly like a risk taker or was this a different uh, type of uh, America? Well, it may have been a, a different type of America. But interestingly, um, I came out of business school during a recession. So jobs were not easy to get. 
I took the job at CBS at half the salary I was making as a consultant, which was probably not your typical route to success. I remember my father calling me up and saying, and what's the plan here? You know, you yeah. <laughs> left the job. And now I said, don't worry, I, I am going to, you know, make a go of this and it'll all work out in the end. But it was, it was more about sort of just making opportunities where I could. How does, an, um, how does an interview like that go? You walk into CBS, you say, hey, I, I, I was an economist. I went to business school and, you know, I decided I want to be in television. I worked in, in a play. I wrote a play. Hire me. How, how do you convince them? Well, it was easy because what they were looking for, you know, CBS is a huge corporation. I uh -huh. didn't get anywhere near programming at CBS. Uh -huh. I got hired as a financial analyst. Uh -huh. I was doing this, you know, lots of financial analysis work. Uh, which that I found boring. I have to say yeah. that was a fairly low level job in a very big company. And I realized pretty quickly that I was not built for CBS. You know, that was not what was going to make me happy. Luckily, a friend of mine had just gone to HBO and mm. called me up and said, Hey man, this place is unbelievable. People are walking down the halls saying they're going to change television. That's their mission. And of course that's what they did. Um, and he said, you got to come over here. <laughs> and he said, the good news is they're looking for somebody to do an econometric forecasting model so that, of, uh, so that they can figure out how many subscribers are going to have. And I thought of you, cause I think you're the only guy in the whole business who knows how to do that stuff. And mm. I went over there interviewed for it and they said, sure. Now, once again, I did not want to be doing econometric forecasting at HBO. Was I wanted to be door. closer to programming. Yeah. But this was all part of my longer term plan. So, you know, you tell me, is, is, I think it was more about me being patient, number one, and number two, sort of using everything I had to yeah. get what I needed. So when the job came up, I knew I could get it, and I knew if I did a good job with the forecasting model that I get noticed in the company it was a smaller company, a mm -hmm. uh, pretty small company actually. And I thought, okay, this could set me up at least to get uh, a more interesting job for me. And well, it did. You just reminded me of something. When I was 16 years old, I had this idea that I wanted to uh, do a show on HBO. Mm -hmm. I think the Sopranos were big at the time. And I was like, you know, I'm, I'd started doing stand up when I was 15 and I thought, they should really give me a show at HBO. I could come up with a lot of things. And I walked into HBO on Avenue of the Americas. And I went up to the desk and I said, yeah, I'd like to meet with the executives. Uh, and they said, do you have an appointment? And I said, no. Tell them I'm a really funny guy and I've got a lot of great ideas. And they said, for what? I said, for shows. And they said, okay, well, you can you can wait in the lobby and we'll see if somebody will meet with you. And I waited there for an entire afternoon, and finally they said, no, I'm sorry, <laughs> no one's going to meet with you. <laughs> well, you know, that's that would be an interesting story, except for the part where they tortured you by keeping you there yeah, all afternoon. All afternoon. They had no intention of letting you right. see an executive. <laughs> um, they, they were just trying to teach you a lesson. I think so. Um, well, I, I got to say, my plan was probably better than your yeah, plan, although seems... your plan was... Um, if it worked, would have worked a lot faster than my plan. <laughs> <laughs> it had that going for it. Yeah. But so I was patient. I mean, I think that was part of it. And one thing I didn't mention is when I came out of school, uh, when I came out of business school looking for a job in the television business, I started looking at all these channels that were around and it was, you know, they were starting all these new channels, all these 
there was an ESPN all sports and all music and all news and all this stuff. And I'm like, Hey, where's the all comedy channel? Mm -hmm. I love comedy. I think there should be an all comedy channel. So I started thinking about that and talking to people about it sort of casually, you know? Um, but I didn't really pitch it in earnest until I got to HBO. And that was a few years later. Uh, and what I was immediately told was it was too expensive. It couldn't be done. Nobody wanted a comedy channel. Uh, and it was, you know, there's too many cable channels already. I think there were 20 mm. <laughs> and they're not going to have any more. <laughs> so, you know, uh, like most companies, they had a lot of excuses for not doing it. Right. And, uh, I, I pretty much got sent back to my day job and said, you know, thanks for coming by, but we're not interested. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was very disappointing to me. But once again, I said, all right, well, I'm not, I'm not going to let this happen because I know there will be a comedy network. Somebody will start it. I was hoping it would be HBO. I was hoping they'd give me a job on it, quite frankly. Um, but if they're not going to do it, I'll try someone else. I started writing, sending my resume, getting my resume ready to send to Viacom and to some other companies, you know, because Viacom owned an MTV. I figured, hey, I'll send my resume. I'll send my plan for this channel, mm -hmm. which, as I said, started with clips because it was very inexpensive programming. Right. Uh, as as a, a large portion of the of the channel, and maybe they'll give me a job. Maybe they'll put the channel on, and maybe I'll get a job in the comedy network that way. But as luck would have it, my boss's boss found out what I was doing, and thought it was cool. And he said, "Come on, I'm going to take you in to see the chairman of HBO." Now, mm -hmm. that's like you have to imagine this: the chairman of HBO had just been declared the most powerful man in Hollywood. Uh, by the New York Times. They did a cover story on the New York Times magazine for, uh, about him. His name was Michael Fuchs. If I ever ended up accidentally at that time in the elevator with Michael Fuchs, I broke into a sweat. You know, I mean, this guy was, <laughs> he was God, you know, um, and very powerful and, uh, and made and broke careers in an instant. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he, he didn't just waltz into his office, but there I was waltzing into his office um, with my boss's boss who, who, uh, could get me in and without any presentation materials or any prep, I pitched them the comedy network. I said, yeah, and I called it the comedy channel. I, and I said, here's how we do it. And here's what it looks like. And here's what it's going to be. It's going to be the center of the comedy universe. All the comedians are going to want to hang out with us. We're going to find great innovative comedy. I just pitched my heart out and I really sold them on the vision about if we are successful, mm -hmm. this is what it's going to look like in 10 years. You know, we are going to be heroes. We are going to be the first name in comedy. We are going to be making com comedy careers. Wow. And we are going to be doing stuff nobody else will do. And I think that's what sold him. He was also a, a comedy fan. I will throw that in. He was, he was mm -hmm. the guy who was responsible before he became chairman for putting on the, uh, those hour-long, highly produced comedy shows you know they did robin williams and whoopi and, and george carlin and, you know all those guys was he uh, the guy who brought carlin to hbo yeah well i mean it was there but i mean he did those he did those specials he he really put mm -hmm. made something out of them made it a franchise and got everybody to do them uh and uh he loved comedy so it wasn't like i was pitching somebody who didn't care um, but he had never thought of doing a comedy network. 
um, because for the same reasons, he thought it was expensive and it was impractical and nobody wanted one. So we went from there. Uh, and that's how I ended up in the comedy business. And I will say you're in the comedy business cause you're a standup comic. Mm-hmm. Um, I was not in the comedy business because I was not a standup comedian. I was not a, a comedy writer. Um, and the first thing they teamed me up with a head of, of, uh, comedy programming at HBO, a guy named Stu Smiley. I don't know if you know Stu. Do you know Stu? I know the name. He, um, yeah, he was kind of a legend in the business. But anyway, the first thing he said to me was when we met was, what do you know about comedy? And he didn't say it in a nice way, like, don't worry, kid, I'll (laughs) teach you. It was kind of like, um, what are you doing here? You know, who the hell are you? Uh, and that, that pretty much summarized our relationship for a long time. <laughs> I didn't know anything about the comedy business, and Stu knew everything about the comedy business. He knew all the guys' home phone, all the comedians' home phone numbers. He knew right. all the agents. He knew where things were, what they cost, how to produce a, com- a comedy show. And I knew nothing. You know, I, I had no idea, and I had to sort of teach myself on the job. And nobody was real anxious uh, to help me with that. So that was something I didn't expect. As Did I got you start hanging out at comedy, comedy clubs? What, what was your process there? Our process? Um, well, we were going to do clips. I was in charge of uh, sourcing the clips, you know, and doing all the work to get the pro- that, that kind of programming together, including long-form programming, movies, and, and uh, any of this. We put on some sitcoms. We put on some old comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was put in charge of that immediately. Now, that was stuff I could do. Um, and then... The other part of it was having uh, was finding talent um, to do some of the shows. You know, to I mean, they were we did a show called Short Attention Span Theater, where it was that. a clip show, but there were comedians on it. Actually, uh, that was John Stewart was that was his first gig with us, and he was great, by the way. Uh, and so, you know, we built a studio, and Stu was in charge of building the studio, and. Uh, and that's that's how we divided things up. But on top of that, we had to figure out what a comedy network actually was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had to figure out what other kinds of programming we wanted. Luckily, Mystery Science Theater 3000 showed up in the mail. I kid you not. Um, we were uh, having a meeting with Stu and the head, of, uh, the head writer at Comedy Central, a guy named Eddie Gordetsky, who's a writer in Hollywood today, works on sitcoms. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Eddie was saying, we need, a, we need a show where comedians sit in front of television and make jokes about whatever's on, like whatever show is on. Right. And we all thought that would be a great idea. And we started going about putting together that show. And a couple of days later, this guy walks in with a tape, says, you got to see this. It was Mystery Science Theater 3000, Joel Hodgson and his two puppet friends sitting in front of bad movies, <laughs> making jokes. Yeah. It was perfect. So obviously we made a deal. Um, but that was that was one of the first signs that to me that the comedy channel was going to be successful, um, because Mystery Science Theater three thousand they sent it to us in the mail with a note saying, "Hey, heard you guys are starting a comedy channel. Is this something you might like?" And I thought, man, this is here's a show that wouldn't get on HBO or NBC or anywhere, and now there's a comedy network, and these guys knew exactly where to find us. And we went on to attract, as you know, lots of innovative comedy over the years. Uh, and and so that was, you know, that's how it, we got started. It's so exciting. And the story is fantastic. And you kind of go through all these different 
some highlights that I, I thought were great were Dennis Miller peeing in a garbage can while his mic was on. <laughs> yeah, well, that was, you know, we did live television. We And one of our innovations was covering the presidential State of the Union address. Uh-huh. We actually had started that years earlier um, in 92 with um, Al Franken as the first host. But this was years later, and uh, Dennis was doing it, and it was live, of course, because you're doing you're following the thing live. Right. And the speech went long, really long, <laughs> and Dennis had to go to the bathroom. So he got out. He finally he got up and he just went outside, and the bathroom wasn't nearby. He was still hooked up to his mic. You know, he wasn't on camera, <laughs> but he was hooked up to his mic, and he was talking through it. And he went to the bathroom in a garbage can, and then he went back out finished it. Uh, and when he was done, he came out and said, uh, that's it. I just killed my career. And it was, it was <laughs> not funny for him. I mean, right. he was really scared that he had, he had just crossed the line and I had to convince him that it went great. Everybody loved it. It was fine. Don't worry. So that was a lot yeah, of, but that's uh, live television. A lot of your job from what I gathered from the book was managing difficult comedian personalities. Like you had, uh, this whole thing with Bill Maher, which was great about uh, talk a little bit about the bus and, and, and uh, I, I just think it'd be good to hear it from you. It's a, rather than have me recap the story. It's, it's a good story. Yeah. You know, Bill Maher was, came to us with an idea for a show and he pitched us in a diner, which is something else I talk about in the book. And it was a great pitch. It was for politically incorrect. He said he wanted to, you know, had a talk show where people actually talked and go up to the line and cross the line. And it sounded dangerous and fun. And so we bought it on the spot at the diner. And my comment to myself was, Hey, this Bill Maher, he seems like a nice guy. Maybe we'll be pals. Mm -hmm. Cut to Bill was not an easy guy to work with, uh, for anybody. And his show was not a rip roaring success at the beginning. And I think that put added pressure on him. But one of the things I wanted to do as the show started to get traction and as the channel started to get traction was to do an advertising campaign. And one of the, I wanted to advertise a show. So we did, we did an outdoor campaign, which ran in New York and Chicago and a bunch of other cities. Uh, we were in New York, obviously. So he saw it there and uh, there were bus sides and the bus sides were like saying, you know, pointing to somebody in the window and saying, does this head, this guy's head look pointy to you or, you know, other stupid stuff, but politically incorrect. Mm-hmm. Like you're not supposed to stay, say that stuff. Right. And we were advertising politically incorrect that way. Bill called me up and he was really upset. I mean, really angry. And he said that, you know, you don't do a campaign like that without telling me now I would have told him, but I knew that if I showed it to him, he would have killed the campaign and then I would have had no con- campaign. So I showed it to his producer and to some other guys, you know, yeah. the programming guys, the marketing guys, everybody saw it. Um, but I didn't show it to Bill because when you're working with guys like that, you just know you're in for a tough time. So he called and told me he was very upset and that he was going to get me fired. Mm-hmm. And he put in some calls to my boss and my boss's boss and everybody else and to tell him that I should be fired because I wasn't doing a good job. And that was uh, that was a tough moment. Um, but as, as I, uh, talk about in the book, things came around, right. You got vindicated uh, in my favor, I, you know, um, in an unbelievable way. And to make a long story short, I mean, we, we won an award for that campaign, 
<laughs> and the award, as luck would have it, was given to us at the award show by the, the host of the awards, Bill. who happened to be Bill Maher. <laughs> and she didn't even know we were up for the award. And it was just such a, you know, it's a moment you could only dream of. Right. You know, where someone was taking you apart for an ad campaign and suddenly he's handing you the statue for the best outdoor ad campaign. Unbelievable, uh, really. Yeah, I know. It is unbelievable, but it, in fact, happened. Um, and only in comedy, and I say only in comedy because I only know comedy, so maybe it's not true, but to, in my experience in comedy and probably not many other places, are you dealing with people who are so touchy that, you know, they, you don't like the ad campaign? I got to get this guy fired. It's an insane... You know, it's an insane business. Comedians are insane people. And, uh, no, I, I'll, I, I'll add to that. I, I don't think it's just comedians. Um, and comedians, you're right, are, are some, sometimes, not always. I don't want to paint the entire industry as a, as a difficult group to work with because it's not true. Um, there, were, there were guys I worked with, there were comedians and guys and women I worked with who were fun to work with, who were great. Mm -hmm. Who were very supportive and, and easygoing, and right. Um, and then there were guys like Bill who were who were just tough. But listen, you know, at the end of the day, as it was explained to me, you are the guys who are going out there on stage or on television. You're putting your face out there and your right. reputation out there uh, in a way that everybody can see that I didn't have to do. Right. Right. You can hide um, behind the camera. And so sure. I, one of the things I had to learn uh, as I was working in the comedy business was how to deal with the talent. Um, so what are some of the tricks? What were some of the things that you found? Like, man, I wish I would have known this earlier because... Uh, well, if you see talent cross the street, that was what I'm like. <laughs> no, um, truthfully, there were people, and uh, Lori Zacks was, uh, I think, one of the people I talked a lot about in the book. She was the head of talent. And she, I don't know, she she had a gift. She still does. I mean, she still, mm -hmm. she's a very uh, prominent producer. But... I used to watch her deal with talent and she was terrific. Just, I, 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 I couldn't even describe exactly how she did it, but she was like a, a talent whisperer. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. She would calm these people down. She would, you know, and most of the time she was working on calming people down. <laughs> and I tried to emulate her quite frankly, when I was, uh, when I was dealing with them, um, you know, yeah. Tell them how great they are for one thing and tell them how wonderful it is that we're, you know, you're here and working with us. And, you know, there's got, there's got to be a constant stream of that. Um, and, and also, as I said, it's a, it's a matter of coming to the realization that they're on the line in a way that I wasn't on the line and being really sympathetic to that. Right. And I think I'll tell you one other thing that helped me was my knowledge of comedy uh, a lot of comedians I worked with and a lot of the comedy writers and talent were always happy to be working with someone who had some understanding of, of comedy. I wasn't just a suit, you know, I wasn't a guy, right. just some, you know, financial guy. I was a guy who really appreciated their, what they were doing and how they did it. And I was a big supporter. And I also knew the history, which, um, which was important to some of them, you know, right. uh, certainly Robert Klein, made that point to me when we were working together that it was nice to have a comedy network where the, some of the people knew something about comedy roots. Uh, and Alan King said that also at lunch to me when we had uh, our lunch in the Russian tea room, which is where I start the book actually. Right. Um, and, and I, I still think that's important to understand the roots of whatever you're in, whatever art you're in, 
You know, you can't be uh, Picasso without understanding Rembrandt. Uh, although I'm sure Picasso would argue with me right now, but that's just the kind <laughs> of guy he was. But my point is that, you know, you, you, yeah. you study, right. uh, you study the history in order to understand it and get better and be better. Yeah. And, uh, by the way, I had Robert Klein on this show. Oh, did you? He's a great and, guy. And, uh, yeah, he, you know, he, he's another guy who, he, he came off very depressed to me. I thought he was very, you know, <laughs> <laughs> He was nice, but he was—he seemed very depressed. Which is, I was like, you know, you're supposed to be Robert Klein. You're funny, you know. You let it—he let the heaviness of life get to him. I don't know. I, I, you I know, think that's why you he lost. That because when I worked with Robert Klein, he was literally in the middle of his divorce. He's married to a I very think famous that divorce opera destroyed him. That's what he was talking to me about the divorce. He—he he actually mentioned that. That's yeah. Incredible. Yeah, he, he was in the middle of this divorce with the opera singer, and um, he was he was really uh, having a tough time of it. Um, I think that's what it was, honestly. I, I, I think that the divorce destroyed him. It took away the lightness. That said, years later, I did you know I did run into him. I was I was president of Court TV, and he would he I don't know how he ended up coming over. We got together or whatever it was, and. Uh, I thought he was great, actually. I mean, he must have been having a you know a good year or something. But we we spent some time with him. I spent some time with him then and thought, okay, he's he's doing okay. I mean, listen, Robert Robert Klein. When I saw Robert Klein for the first time, I was in college. Yeah. And he was the biggest comedy act in the country uh, at that time. So this is a guy who was a real comedy star. He. Um, and he's no longer that big of a star. I'm sure, you know, like like most people who've had their success come and go, he's probably a little sad about that, too. Well, he could have. I but, think he just didn't do what George Carlin did, which was, you know, keep reinventing himself for the times. Um, I think that's right. I think that may be right. Again, he, he, uh, when, he was, when he was at his height, he was spectacular and... and did some really, really good stuff. But you're right, he didn't change much. I think Robert Klein, he, he did a bunch of sitcoms. You may know that. I think he really wanted to to be a, a perform, an actor. And he wanted to be a, you know, on sitcoms. And he had a sitcom and he was on other people's sitcoms. And, and that's, that's uh, I think that was yeah. the boat he felt he missed. Well, I'm imagining you like the other art from the Larry Sanders show, walking around calming the talent down, the Rip Torrance character. <laughs> well, it, it, that wasn't my whole job. As I said, I tell I tell some stories because I was fascinated with the with the talent, and some people I became friends with. You know, I mean, Mark Marin, for example, uh -huh. he was like a young comic; nobody really knew him, and he used to hang out in my office. We used to talk all the time. I thought he was a great guy, very smart, mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, uh, so, so some of these guys I was actually friends with and some of them, I just had a very difficult time you, working with them when I had to work with them again, I wasn't, uh, producing their shows necessarily or, or dealing with them directly on a day-to-day -day basis. But as we, you know, as we shaped the channel and worked with them, I had to, I had to get in there. Yeah. You talk in the book about John Stewart being a really loyal guy. He well, went to bat for his co-anchor who we were in the process of letting go. And he was very upset about that. He was very upset about that. And basically he became indignant 
<laughs> and I saw a flash of the John Stewart that the country was going to see several years later on the on the Daily Show, which he did brilliantly. Mm-hmm. Um, but he really felt strongly about it, you know, and threatened to quit himself because he he didn't think his partner should be uh, his on air partner should have been fired. Uh, with or without his permission, he thought she was great, mm-hmm. and he was being loyal to her. Um, yeah, yeah, that was that was quite a moment. Who were the most loyal people to you? Uh, well, starting with my wife. <laughs> That's uh, a good it's not, start. It's not that long of a list. Because <laughs> um, there's a lot of stories I, you know, of backstabbing is, in the book. A lot of people well, were. <laughs> No, let me let me make it clear. Uh, there is a lot of backstabbing, but working at any corporation, and especially in television, and especially when you're in a creative endeavor, where you've got a you know a creative force uh, meeting a business force, meaning you know we had to make money. Uh, th- that made for some exciting uh, exciting times for everybody. Mm-hmm. Because uh, the the business side was demanding that we make money faster and spend money slower, as you can imagine. And the the creative side, you know, they had all kinds of ideas about how we could do things better and funnier and, you know, if we only had more money for talent and everything else. So that was was the dynamic that pushed the channel forward uh, on a daily basis. Uh, somebody asked me the other day, actually, if I still have friends from the Comedy Channel from the very early days and from Comedy Central. And the answer is yes. We were, as you can imagine, a very tight group after a while because we were forged in, mm-hmm. in, uh, in, forged in fire, as they say. Right. Um, and a lot of us stayed in touch. Uh, Larry Divney, who was head of ad sales and ultimately became president uh, of, uh, of Comedy Central, uh, I was talking to him the other day. Um, you know, I mean, there's just a bunch of us talk, who, who talk. I mean, you wouldn't know the names necessarily. But right. the people who put that put the channel together, uh, we, we do talk. Let me, let me go back for a second. We, we talked a little bit about HBO and how they formed the Comedy Channel. You talked also, you mentioned about how you sent your idea to MTV, who ultimately, you say in the book, started a channel called the Ha Channel, which was in competition with you. Yeah, that was an interesting time. You know, the funny thing is, the lesson I learned at that very moment was never underestimate the competition. I did not send the proposal to MTV. I was, I didn't get that far. Uh, remember, I brought it to the chairman first of HBO. Um, but interestingly, the chairman of HBO, who, as I said, was the most powerful man in Hollywood, was so excited about this channel that he couldn't wait to announce it. And he had a Big announcement, big press party in Los Angeles. I remember standing next to Billy Crystal talking to him about, you know, what the channel was going to be and everything else. Because, you know, there were a lot of comedians there that Michael had gathered for this press thing. And he really went on the record saying this is going to be the greatest channel ever. It's going to be funny, funniest channel, best comedy, you know, really kind of went out there with it. Yeah. Um, and the next day, the, the very next day, MTV Networks 
put out a press release <laughs> saying, oh, we are starting a comedy network as well. Yeah. Now, MTV Networks is a little bit famous for doing exactly that whenever they were faced with any competition. I'm sure they read about or heard about the our announcement and the press conference and said, uh-oh, are we going to let this whole comedy thing go go to HBO? we got to get on it. So they right. put out a press release. They hadn't been working on it. You know, it's not like we, we've been working on it for six months, which yeah. is why they ended up launching six months after us, I think. Um, but yeah, they launched a channel. It was called Ha, the comedy network, much different concept. We were going for edgy comedy. They were relying a little more on, uh, sitcoms because that was their, you know, that was their stock and trade. They had Nickelodeon, Nick, Nick at night, which was running sitcoms, old sitcoms. And they made a great channel out of that. So that's where they started, where they would have ended up, uh, is, is hard to say, but it, it, it didn't matter. Nobody knows because we ended up merging at the end of the year, we fought each other to a draw over the course of six or seven months. And I, I thought we, you know, I thought the comedy channel was the better channel. I'm sure, not I'm sure, I know they thought how was the better channel. Um, and everybody was fighting like crazy. And then everybody doing the fighting uh, got a phone call saying, um, listen, Viacom and HBO decided to merge the channel. So thanks very much. And that was, <laughs> that was very disappointing. That was very disappointing to both sides. Right. Uh, and I know that because they put me together with my opposite number at, at Ha, the head of programming there, um, and said, okay, look, we're going to put you guys together, figure out who you're hiring and firing from both channels, figure out what you're going to do with the programming. And by the way, you have to rename it and you can't call it comedy channel or Ha. So you got to find a name and we want you to relaunch it and make this channel a success. So who came up with the name comedy central? Was that you? It was not me. It was uh, sort of an accident. And the accident was we hired lots of people who were experts at naming things, brand builders and all these other companies. You know, there are companies that do this for a living and they suggested a bunch of names. And at one point we, we were just so frustrated because we didn't like any of the names they were coming up with. We said, all right, well, we're just, let's take the best five names and we'll put them in a research, you know, we'll, we'll put put out a research, uh, uh, um, you know, questionnaire that would go to a thousand people or something and see which names they like the best. And maybe, we, maybe that'll help us make a decision. And the, the head of research said, you know what? We don't have enough. Now we really want to put a couple other names in here. You know, what do you got? And I said, well, the guy said, one of the guys said that we should be the central place for comedy. We should be comedy central. And then after he said it, he said, but don't call it comedy central because it's, that's too on the nose. And we said, Oh, okay. But we threw comedy central into the research, into the, into the uh, mix and lo and behold, it came back like you know, everybody loved the name and nobody liked the other name. So that's how we got it named Comedy Central. Yeah, I liked the name. I thought when the guy mentioned it in the meeting and said, hey, you know, Comedy Central, but don't call it that. I thought, and I actually asked, why not? Sounds good to me. Yeah. And he said, no, no, too on the nose, too on the nose. On the nose is what you want. It's like that movie. You ever watch that movie Crazy Heart with Jeff Bridges? Uh, it's been a while. I love that movie. But he's writing a song, and uh, and uh, the girl says, uh, "I feel like I've heard that before." And he said, "Yeah, you always feel that way when with the good ones, you know." <laughs> I remember that scene. Yeah, yeah. So, I think that's right. I think I think maybe we did know, maybe I did know when he said it that that was that was going to be a good name for us, and it turned out to be a good good name for us. 
Um, so, uh, I mean, it's really quite an accomplishment, and the book itself is an accomplishment. It's a great book. It's got so much... Uh, I, 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 I want to talk a little bit about your ending uh, at Comedy Central, which is, it's such a disappointing, you, you know, you wind up, this new woman comes in, and uh, and she just, let me let you tell it, she just wouldn't, she kept downgrading your position until ultimately firing you, but can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, she, she was... Um she was actually somebody I knew for a long time. Um, and it wasn't really her that, that put me in that position originally. It was, they brought in new management. MTV sort of took over the channel, uh, and ultimately bought it from comedy. I'm sorry, from HBO. They were a 50, 50 joint venture, Mm -hmm. but HBO had sort of been more responsible for executives and personnel in the first round. And then MTV said, okay, our turn. And they put in a new president. They fired the president who had been there since the merger. And that's who my boss was, the president, uh, you know, that president who got fired. Now, when your boss gets fired in any company, uh, you're in for a bumpy ride to begin with. You know, sometimes it ends well, sometimes it ends less well. And that's partly because some new guys come in and they look around and say, oh, this guy's good. I'm going to keep him. And this guy's not good. I'm not going to keep him. But some guys come in, the new bosses say, okay, out with the old, you know, and in with my, my guys. And that's, that's what happened. The new guy brought in his guys uh, and displaced the rest of us. Now they didn't fire me right off the bat because (laughs) I'm not even sure why they fired a lot of people. They fired a lot of uh, a lot of people in the network, but they said, no, you're going to go, you know, we're going to make you head of new business development. Which mm-hmm. There wasn't a new business development department, but suddenly I was it. Um, and then they said, and you're going to be working for this woman who was the head of finance. And I said, well, she'll fire me because she will. And right. they said, no, no, she's, she, mm-hmm. she thinks you're great. And I said, no, I'm not so sure about that. Anyway, I got fired, but um, shortly thereafter, uh, after doing some good things, well, I did uh, the first Comedy Central website because that's when the web was getting started. Nobody really knew. What was I remember going that on. website. And I did a Comedy yeah. Central website that was funny. Uh, got together with some comedy guys and basically made it instead of like just a brochure or what's on Comedy Tonight kind of thing. We put comedy on it, web comedy. We actually did a book. Uh, that came out of that, that did pretty well. It was, a, it was Comedy Central's first publication, and it was called Web Sightings, a collection of websites we'd like to see. Because we thought the website, we thought web, the web was a riot. We thought it was just, <laughs> it was new, and it was like every website you could think of was out there, and then <laughs> half of them were stupid. So <laughs> we thought we'd have some fun, yeah. and we put this book together. It was great. Um, anyway, so yeah, so I got fired. And when I, when I got fired, I, I thought, man, what do you have to do to keep a job in this town? You know, I mean, how about you start the channel and then you, you build the channel into something successful and then that didn't work. I mean, that's not enough apparently yeah. to keep your job. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I will say, I will say that was a blow. That was the first time I was ever fired. Uh, and, and actually I think it was the only time I was ever fired, but at that point it was the first time. And I thought guys like me didn't get fired. I said, why would anybody fire me? I do a good job. I work hard. I've, you know, I've done a lot of good stuff. Why would I get fired? Right. Uh, but I got fired and that gave me a new, a new window on the whole getting fired thing in corporate America. 
that people just didn't get fired because they were bad at their jobs. Sometimes they get fired because of crazy circumstances, and sometimes they didn't deserve it. Right. So um, that was that was a lesson for me as well. It's tough that you know this this business on both ends can kill your spirit. Um, I know you in the in the title, as I referenced earlier, you say you lost your sense of humor. It's obviously not true. Uh, just talking to you—that's <laughs> apparent. But uh, what about the future with you in comedy? Is there one you think there's any interest, uh, or I mean, you, you started Comedy Central. It seems like you're in a good position to do something. Yeah, you know what? I I I had a good career. I I worked at comedy. I was president of Court TV. I did a lot of work after that for a bunch of different companies. Um, and then I stopped and I, a couple of years ago, I decided I wanted to pursue writing and that's what I've been doing. I, I not only wrote the book, but I'm writing fiction now. I've written short stories. I've written a lot more memoir, like, you know, thousands of thousands of words about my childhood. In case you're interested, you know, I can send you a hundred thousand words on, <laughs> on my first five years. Send um, over. And, I have just been having a great time doing that. So that's what I'm doing. I'm doing that. I'm playing piano. I'm playing drums. I am not going to go back into the comedy business or probably any business. <laughs> I think this is what I'm going to be doing for the for the next 20. But you are going to do uh, a podcast, I understand. Well, you know, Vinny, uh, Vinny Favalli, who is um, with me at Comedy Central, and I have been talking about this. We want to do a podcast. It's the 30th anniversary of Comedy Central. I don't know if you realize that, but it was started in 1991. Uh, that was when the merger came out with uh, uh, the merged channel was Comedy Central. And we thought we'd do a podcast about the early days of comedy and how much fun and how crazy it was and talk to some people who were there and talk to some people who were just fans and, you know, see how that goes. Yeah, so we are planning a podcast. How far along are you on that? Um. Well, we got the press release out. I think that's a, a major, <laughs> <laughs> that's a major, that took a lot. Yeah. Um, we, we've been talking about it for a long time. We've been kind of gathering materials and stuff. So I'll tell you what, if you want a producer, I would love to produce it. You know what? Okay. You, you might be on because Vinny and I were talking about that yesterday saying, man, we can't produce this. We need somebody to somebody who can do this um so i can do thank that. you your yeah. uh, name is in the hat all right and it's uh it's the only name in the hat as things stand so <laughs> good to be in the hat <laughs> we will see how things go all right cool well i'm looking forward to hearing that podcast when it airs and i recommend everybody check out the book it's called constant comedy and uh art it's a it's a great read it's got a lot of drama in it it's got a lot of uh, great stories in it about comedians that I'm sure a lot of people know and would love to hear about in uh, a different light. Yeah, and a lot of people say, uh, you know, uh, at this point it came out in September, so I've heard from a lot of people who've read it and liked it, and they said that they enjoyed it because a lot of it was funny, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, that was that was part of my that was part of my aim to make it, you know, a real story but make it a good read and fun to read and, and it's and touching. A funny read. It's touching yeah. and it's relatable because. You know, there's a lot of disappointment as, in as much as there's a lot of excitement in your story. So, you know, you, you yeah, really... Yeah, it was a great adventure, and I wanted to make sure that I got it down on paper and and people uh, got a chance to read it. So I'm, I'm glad the book's out there. I'm glad it's doing well. It's called Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. It's a memoir, uh, and 
it's available at bookstores and on Amazon and Barnes and Noble websites, all those websites. So um, the other place you can find out more about me and the book is my website, artbellwriter.com. And I've got some other things I've written on there and information about the book and my bio and an interview with myself. And it's, it's kind of a fun place to visit. So I encourage people to do that. Art Bell, the great Art Bell. Thank you very much. I enjoyed your book and I love talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.